Hi there, I'm Melissa, a registered dietitian specialized in intuitive eating for on-again, off-again chronic dieters, and I'm here to help you take the guilt and stress out of eating so you can be the first in your family to break the diet cycle. I'm interested in helping you unlearn generational diet trauma so you can be who you are without food guilt. Be sure to follow on Instagram at nomoreguilt for more support between these episodes. Are you ready? Let's jump in. Before we dive in on this episode, I want to tell you some great news. It made me so happy to see the wait list for the Gentle Nutrition Intensive grow these past week. My podcast community is very special. You guys are with me every week doing the hard work, trying to understand your generational diet responses and how to make the most of them. And so to offer you this very special small group to this community means the world to me. And we are actually going to open the doors to this program this week on Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. If you are on the wait list, you are going to get an email from me inviting you to join this exclusive offer. I'm going to keep it open until Black Friday, which is the 25th of November. So you'll have a little over a week to take a look at this intensive six-week small group program that we're going to be starting in the new year. And because you are my most very special community, I'm throwing in two bonuses with the Gentle Nutrition Intensive. One of them is the full access to my course, The Ex-Dieter's Guide to No More Guilt. So alongside your group meetings with me and other members, you're going to have a chance to learn deep dive skills from the intuitive eating frameworks, health at every size, and other tricks I've learned along the way to help heal your relationship with food. Bonus number two is going to be three months of access to the No More Guilt community. That means while you are in your group calls and after the fact, you're going to have my support through monthly office hours, monthly community meetups, and a message board where you can ask questions of me and other members 24-7. This offer is one of my favorites to open up when I can alongside my typical one-to-one work. So if you've been following along and you are interested in learning more about this offer while it is here, click the link in the show notes, put your name on the wait list and watch out for an email on Wednesday. I can't wait to invite you and hopefully see you in our small group in January. Here's Dr. Maggie Landis talking about why it is that our doctors can't seem to get on board with health at every size. Hey, Maggie, how you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Before we met for this recording, I told you, you are one of the only medical doctors I see in this space speaking out about health at every size and really approaching your medical care and your self-care from that lens. So I'm really looking forward to your perspective today. Well, thank you. I wish there wasn't, I wish I wasn't in such a minority, but it still is. And that's, that's part of my mission is to really help healthcare providers, specifically doctors understand that they can change how they've maybe practiced forever up till this point. But why are there medical doctors missing from this conversation? I don't think that's a taboo thing. I think there are a lot of forces at play 
that make it difficult for providers to choose this work. So how do you feel about diving in on that conversation? That, let's get to it. That's what I love talking about. <laughs> She's like metaphorically rolling her sleeves. That's right. Up. Rolling the sleeves up. Let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about your background as a medical doctor and what ultimately led you to health at every size. And then we can talk more of that big picture stuff. Right. Well, so as many medical doctors or dietitians or other professionals that work in this space, we didn't start here. That goes without saying that most of us have had to transition at some point in our careers because this this uh, inclusive, weight-inclusive practice is not the model that we are taught. So I was just like everybody else. I, I've been a physician for 20 years. 15 years, I practiced in a weight-centered, very diet culture-influenced way of practice because that's what I was taught. That's what I believed personally. That's what I just, like, you don't ever stop to question it. To be honest, when everybody is telling you this is what you do, you don't even stop to, like, think twice. I mean, there's just simply not the bandwidth and the time to scrutinize every single thing you're being told. So right. the professor with the white hair and the bow ties in the front of the lecture hall in medical school, and he says, if you're overweight, you're going to get diabetes. You just sort of like say, okay, and you write it in your notebook and you keep going because there's not the luxury of like questioning everything. And particularly if the information you're learning is consistent with what you already know, yeah. like quote, no, because you know, everybody knows, um, if it's consistent with your own personal belief system, you don't question it. You just keep going, going, going. So here's where I transitioned. And this is probably the worst and best thing that happened to me, but I got cancer two months after my 40th birthday, which was at this point, almost six years ago. And I decided almost being dead was bad. And I needed to, in my recovery, find, quote, the perfect human diet so that I don't die, okay? Because I was just, like, obsessed with, like, I'm not going to have anything uh, that I could have prevented happen to me. And this is, you have to remember, this is from my, like, diet culture brain, right? Now, I've already, I mean, I'm 40, like, or I was 40, I'm not 40 anymore, but I had tried every diet that was has been in public between 1988 and current time. So it's not as if I really thought I was going to discover something different, but I decided I was going to do like a kind of like a more deep dive into the actual literature. Instead of just reading the headlines and reading whatever pop information, I was like, okay, I'm pulling articles. Like I'm actually going to read about the science of weight loss and the science of diet and all this sort of stuff. And I realized actually really quickly, there's nothing, this doesn't hold any water. You're like, wait a second, this study that was supposed to be this landmark study truncates its data collection at six months. And you're just like, whoa, wait a second. The whole infrastructure of what I believe just fell apart. And then I started, I don't even know how I, who the first kind of point of contact was, but I started realizing, wow, there's actually a whole world of this weight inclusive, weight neutral practice, intuitive eating, health at every size, all these terms and people that advocate for that and teach on that and the science that's, I mean, I was sold on the science because I'm like, I'm just sort of a cynic. Like you have to kind of prove it to me. Right. But there's good science to support this. This is not just like, oh, well, we like feel bad for fat people. So we need to be nicer. It's not that at all. I mean, yes, we should be nicer, but that, that's, that's not, true too. <laughs> yeah, that's true too. But that's not, that's not what sells me on the practice of medicine in this way. So, so I just totally changed. I mean, just totally changed. I personally quit diet. That was the last diet I ever did. Did, um, actually, I just said, I'm done. This is crazy. And now when you're in this space, I'm sure you feel the same way. You can't unsee everything around you. It is once you're aware, then you realize, oh, wow, this is infiltrating every aspect of our culture, including the practice of medicine. 
it's okay to change. I mean, that's if there's anybody listening to this who's a, a doctor or, you know, healthcare professional, it's okay to change. Our understanding of things, both personally and as a collective group, evolves over time. I mean, this, the stuff that you learn in training as you go 10, 20, 30, 50 years into your career, we know, like, you, you wouldn't go have surgery and some guy's like, I've got this great piece of surgical equipment from 1960. Oh you my God. Yeah, you wouldn't, like, consent to that, right? For some reason, nutrition science, we have this mental blockage thinking that it can never change. That some guy wrote a paper in 1950 that says, uh, if you eat cholesterol, you'll have a heart attack and die. Like, And then we just hang on to this with this, like, sort of biblical truth kind of conviction and but everything else is okay we understand new drugs come out new surgical procedures come out new antibiotics come out new we discover new viruses like that doesn't health models have evolved yeah and see that doesn't throw anybody off we all kind of accept that like we need to update our practice in all these other ways but then when it comes to food and eating and and weight we are hanging our hat on these totally antiquated ideas. There's a lot of reasons it's a problem, but that's, that's how I came to this space. So I am like, you know, five to six years, like into this work with a very long history of diet culture practice, personal, you know, disordered eating and dieting. I fortunately escaped the grips of a full on eating disorder, but I could have easily because I was all in the diet bus. You know, we left the station in 19, probably 88. (laughs) And off she went. (laughs) Off she went into the yonder, yes. It's so interesting to think about your personal experience. And it sounds like that time of the cancer diagnosis was a real catalyst. Well, yeah, because let me tell you what, if I wouldn't have had that uh, sort of like forced break in things, I probably would have never even considered twice what I was doing, either personally or professionally. And I probably to this day would still be somewhere handing out the food pyramid and buying keto strips and who knows what other crazy stuff I would be doing because I just, there wasn't, there wouldn't have been any kind of impetus to change. Um, So I would like to have people understand that it's okay to change. It's safe to learn new things. And in fact, it may end up actually being better personally and professionally. And if you can figure that out without having to go through the experience of cancer, then that's like a, you know, win. Even even better. (laughs) Even better. A little more and more, it's becoming creeping into the mainstream, this conversation about eating disorders and disordered behavior with this and body image and and uh, inclusion and diversity and determinants of health. It's certainly not the mainstream conversation, but it's at least a conversation happening. The problem is once you start hearing about this, now you're accountable as like a, as a physician, you know, you can't even if you're not the one who's diving in first, like once you see it, you can't pretend like you didn't see it or ignore it, then that to me is really negligent practice. And I I use the word negligent, not casually. If you know you're harming people or it potentially could harm people and you're doing it anyway, that's not good practice. You really have to be held to a higher standard because let me tell you what, the lay person, the non-medical person who's your patient, they don't have a clue. Okay, they don't have they, and they cannot be held to the standard of knowing what's good science and what if this a you know statistically significant trials is a clinically meaningful outcome. They're not re, they're seriously they're getting their health information from Instagram and headline news. You know, like we have to be the link between a person making a decision, standing in a grocery store with a shopping cart. We're responsible for that connection. That's 
to me, that's like one of the major parts of practicing medicine is vetting the scientific information and handing it over to the patient in a way that they can consume. And then they get to make decisions. They still have autonomy over their decisions, but you're the one that allows them to make a well-informed decision because they may not be able to parse through all that information on their own. I know you asked what's trapping doctors in this weight-centered way of practice. The training teaches a model of weight management and weight being a primary modifiable risk factor. I don't think it's modifiable or particularly a risk factor for most things that we're talking about, but that's that's what you're taught. And the, the system is really broken. If you get in with her, even for a physical, like a annual physical with the primary care physician, if you have 15 minutes with the direct contact with the provider, that's a, that's a, you're pretty lucky. Most people don't even have that much. I mean, heck we've talked longer than that already on this recording. So it's the point of like, in that time, they have to talk about all the things, not just nutrition and weight or whatever they're talking about. The path of least resistance is to go with the flow. You know, they, out of, I think out of training and protocol, they say, do you have any questions about your care? And I can always see a provider's face change. I'm like, actually, and they're like, oh God, is this a thing? Like, please, like, please don't. Yeah. I remember someone had um prescribed me an oral antibiotic and I was like, can I just, can we just talk about the pros and cons? And she was like, oh, for Christ's sake, please. Like, I got yeah. what we want to say, like, just take the freaking pill. You know, she eventually talked to me and we, we made a decision together about it, but it was, it was interesting to see that and feel that tension in her that she had to go. It's a lot, it's very, very labor intensive to, because your patients are coming in with a weight centered way of thinking too. Okay. Most of them in practice, you would have to transition yourself and then do the work of trying to transform the patient's belief systems. And that is not happening in seven and a half minutes. All right. It's just such a mess. I came totally unglued last week when the FDA said they're going to put more labels on foods and put them on the front of the package instead of the back of the package. The reason that people are confused and apathetic and inactive in terms of health management is not because of lack of information. Mm -hmm. Okay. That is not the primary problem. There is not a problem that people saying like, oh, I've never heard of diabetes. Oh, I had no idea that uh, fast food had fat in it. I mean, nobody's saying that. No, it's not because we don't know. It is because we have people that aren't making a living wage. We have lots of determinants of health. We have inaccessible healthcare. We have, I mean, there's thousands of problems contributing to these health outcomes and weight stigmas on that list, by the way, too. And changing the label on the box of Oreos from the back to the front. That's not the problem, folks. That's not the problem. Health has historically used guilt and fear as a tactic to quote, manage the obesity epidemic, which again, on a whole other podcast, um, how that is not a real thing. And ultimately you're right. That is adding more guilt and fear. It's, it's this big level guilt and fear that's trickling down in these doctor's appointments. The doctors are using those techniques with their patients and the, the patients are using those techniques on themselves. And it's, the culture is ultimately flawed in how we talk about health. Okay, well, let's take a humongous step back because I want to make this point because I do get some doctors that kind of say like, well, what about this? Well, what about that? You know, and they really, really, really believe weight loss helps health outcomes. Okay, mm-hmm. for just a moment, let's play that side of the coin. Okay, let's say there was a health benefit to intentional weight loss. Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't personally believe there is, but let's just say, because that's what all these doctors are saying. 
guess what? In the last 40 years that you have been telling people to lose weight, they're not even losing weight. Mm -hmm. Your methodology of telling them to lose weight, assuming that that leads to good health outcomes, whether or not that last part is true is actually irrelevant because in fact, the more we tell people to lose weight, they're losing less weight. The mean BMI of the American population, it's just going up in this like super tiny ramp. And then 1977, when the first dietary guidelines came out, and that was the first time in history that the American government basically said, this is the correct, correct way to eat. And all Americans should eat this way within the next five to 10 years, that slope of that curve skyrocketed. Telling people to lose weight, in fact, makes them gain weight. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with gaining weight. But what I'm saying is that if we're recommending to do something that's causing the direct opposite relationship, that's like saying, hey, you have high blood pressure. I'm going to give you this medicine to lower your blood pressure. And then I give you the medicine and it makes your blood pressure go up. And then I keep you on the medicine and prescribe you refills. That last little bitty link, whether or not, because it is a, it is a lot to make a doctor a believer that really maybe weight is not even impacting these health outcomes very much at all or at all. We can even lay that to the side because the more proximal conversation is telling people to lose weight doesn't even make them lose weight, even if that's what you think they should be doing. It's not working because it's not supposed to work because that's not how biology works. That's not how the human body works. Or their brains. <laughs> yeah. And we're up. kind of like pouring a lot of resources, you know, time resources, manpower resources, brain power resources, like money into a model of care that actually doesn't benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit the patient, doesn't benefit the provider, doesn't benefit the community at large, doesn't. So could we just do something else. Like that's just like the most simple basic question, but there's a, a lot of resistance to change because we have quote, always done this other way and quote, everybody knows. Well, no, I'm sorry. We need to stop basing our standard of care practices on something that quote, everybody knows when there's actually no science to show that who's everybody and what do they know? Stop telling people to that weight loss will fix every problem that they have in their entire lives. For right now, there is a lot of grassroots work that has to happen at the visit level, patient self-advocacy. Sometimes you can get providers who can support you and advocate for you. Finding a provider that is haze-aligned, those are some steps you you can take or within your power, but you can't always control the outcome of that conversation or right. how it's going to be perceived. And so that's a helpful tip for anyone who's, you know, maybe has a doctor, they can't find another doctor. That happens for a lot of my clients where they maybe are in between medical providers, it has been helpful for them to focus more on the conversation of this has not worked historically for me. Right. And uh, there is evidence to show it may there is that that backs up by it's backed up by the evidence. And how can we move forward knowing that information instead of trying to get them to understand the, the larger philosophical no, it's not. Job. It's a big job to do yeah, that. No. And, and it's, um, especially if you're in a large body and experiencing weight stigma in your care, it's not your responsibility to retrain the health professionals, but you have to be prepared personally to navigate this environment. 
the chance of you like going online, finding a haze aligned medical doctor that's in your area, that's taking new patients, that takes insurance that you can see that like, if you can find all that, but you don't even need to listen to this podcast, you're done. Right. But the, <laughs> the, the luxury of that is, is going to be a very limited group of people that can experience that. Most people don't have that level of flexibility and who they see and when, where they are and stuff like that. I see my advocacy work as twofold. One is I want to help doctors and other health professionals understand how to change and why this benefits their practice. While that's happening, I want people to go to the doctor tomorrow, next week, and have some some tools to stay in healthcare. Because let me tell you what the worst thing is. You go and have such a awful experience with a doctor that not only do you not go back to that doctor, you don't go back to any doctor at all. And you just leave the system. And that's a surefire way for something small to just run off the rails and become terrible. No healthcare is worse than basically almost any healthcare. There is not a single disease condition in human medicine that only fat people get. Not one, not one, not diabetes, not sleep apnea, not arthritis, not PCOS, not heart attacks, whatever you want to name, but it gets pinned on your size. There are people in thin bodies. There are young people. There are white people. There are whatever, all sorts of people that have every single one of those conditions. If a thin person goes to the doctor and has diabetes, the doctor does not just stand there and stare at them and say, shoot, I have no idea. I have no idea what to do. I, my, the only thing I know about diabetes is it's for fat people and I have no idea and you're thin and I don't know. Yeah, like they, short <laughs> yeah no, like exactly. There is treatments and interventions besides weight loss, discounting whether you even think weight loss helps those things. That's not the only thing for any patient. Mm-hmm. So when the doctors tell me like, well, if I don't tell my diabetics to lose weight, what am I supposed to tell them? And I said, literally, is that the only thing you're telling them? Okay. Like there's no you're other information. <laughs> And they're like, well, no, I told them that they should move their body and they should drink water and they should sleep and manage their stress and they should do this. And that. Okay. okay, then all those things on that list are fair to discuss except for the weight loss. Just like basically if you had like a list and you're writing it on a paper, you just like strike that top one out. That's it. There's plenty to discuss. And the reality of weight loss is this. Again, let's take that hat for a second. We do this on the podcast sometimes. Like, Let's pretend we believe it, that weight loss will cure the thing or improve the thing. The gold standard research says safe weight loss is happening at a super, super, super slow rate, right? It would take you sometimes weeks to months to accomplish what it is that they're asking you to do. And we don't see the weight loss continuing past five or 10%. That is in the most successful averages kind of a thing. So even if you were to pursue it, many doctors would not be satisfied with that outcome from the perspective of like, quote, losing weight, because your BMI maybe stayed within the quote, obese range through that experience. Even if that were true, you deserve healthcare today. You don't need to wait for that weight loss to occur to get the healthcare. And it does not last and it does not treat the problem. Okay, let's play this out. I pursue the weight loss. That might be months before I get treatment for this thing that's happening right now. And that doesn't make any sense either to me. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And there's so many fallacies that come out. The phrase that like just burns me up is this when the weight, weight is a modifiable risk factor. I don't think it's directly a risk factor and I don't think it's directly modifiable. It's not 
an activity. It's not a thing you do. You don't do, air quotes, your weight. It's a noun. It's not a verb. I say that all the time. It's a noun. It's not a verb. And I, people that, oh, yes, you do. I lost all of up, 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 weight. Okay. How did you do that? Did you just sit here and say, I'm going to lose weight? Well, no, I started eating this and I quit you know, going to restaurants. I said, okay, 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 okay. Now, those things you just said, those are actual action verbs. If you can incorporate more vegetables into your you know, regular eating plan and you have access to them and you know how to cook them and you have a way to refrigerate them and you like them and your family will eat them and you can afford them. It's probably not a bad thing to do, you know, but it doesn't mean that it's going to even change your weight. There's lots, lots of good science about blood sugar regulation and diabetes that movement helps insulin sensitivity. We can name the biological reason why. That's the thing that's sometimes interesting about these behavior-based things. We have a biological theory for how that is happening. The doctors are linking the behavior to weight loss to the outcome. So they say, you need to start walking more. Okay, let's say you have diabetes. You have diabetes. You need to start moving your body more so you'll lose weight so your blood sugar is maintained. The problem is that's not the right order of events. Mm -hmm. So what happens? The patient says, okay, yes, yes, sir, doctor. Okay. Then they go, they start exercising. They do not lose weight and they say, well, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. But actually the movement helps your blood sugar regulation. Even if your body does not change one ounce of weight. And so the problem is when we have told them that the outcome is weight loss, and that is not achievable, they don't think any of the benefit is going to be present because there's no weight loss, but that's actually not true. So then they get frustrated and they beat themselves up and I can't do this and I'm such a failure. Then they do nothing. Then they say, well, forget it. I'm not going to get up early and go walk. And when they had an opportunity to do a health promoting behavior, but they were told the wrong outcome, it's damaging to link weight loss to these quote, good outcomes that we want, because it doesn't matter if you lose weight, gain weight, stay the same weight. That's kind of like just has no relevance at that point. In a weight stigmatizing environment too, like clients, this is a thing. We want to go back to our doctor and have them say, I'm really pleased with the work you did. I'm really pleased to see you making an effort here. I see you working toward this outcome that we carry together. And that gets lost also when weight loss is on the table, where even if doctors, you know, I have a client who's like, well, my doctor's not rude about it. I'm like, right. But there, there is an absence, absence of positive affirmation on your behaviors that yeah. is really missing in this relationship. And that can be really hard on people too. When, you know, the, when the metrics, the weight and the weight doesn't move, even if they say, well, at least you got some movement. It's, it's a weird pat on the back to people where they yeah, want it's to feel so weird. supported and seen because it is really hard to wake up that early morning and take the walk. Like our lives are freaking complicated and we're getting old and creaky and tired and taking a walk is a big, hard ordeal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The thing is that, and, and your client goes back to the doctor and sort of just like deals with the fact that the doctor's not exactly supportive, but a lot of people, that's enough for them to be like totally turned off. Like, well, forget it, whatever. I'm not, if I can't, you know, they told me to lose however many pounds and I'm supposed to see them in six months. And then five months goes by, you're making your appointment. You haven't lost the weight that they told you. And so you just kind of either don't go at all, or you like kick the can down the road a little bit and like, okay, well, we'll wait a few more months. Maybe I'll finally quote, get in shape or whatever. Um, Then you're not getting healthcare. Then you're not getting your A1C checked. You're not getting your blood pressure checked. You're not getting, I mean, like, like I said before, no healthcare is the worst form of healthcare. So we've, we, as the doctors are the 
drivers of if patients come back or not to us or to any other of our colleagues, we're doing a big disservice to the delivery of our healthcare. We've talked about training as one opportunity that could improve skills of of doctors. What do you think would support a more weight-inclusive experience for patients? Let's say at the PCP level, we can kind of hone in right there. What would help the PCP environment feel more weight-inclusive? We don't ask the right questions. I mean, that's another, this would be a simple thing to do. Like we're talking zero cost, zero training. You should not tell a person to restrict their diet if you haven't even asked what their diet is. Mm-hmm. Okay, because I've heard that a million times. People say, you need to cut carbs and you're talking directly to somebody who's got an eating disorder that you don't even, you haven't even asked about and you are giving them, you're telling them to cut back or telling somebody that you obviously need to exercise more and it, because maybe they're in a large body. What if they already are over-exercising and they've lost their menstrual period and they're like, if you don't ask what is the current state it is unfair to give advice, no matter what the advice is. That's easy. It's not being done. My own daughter, she's she's in high school. She had to go get a school physical for her. She does competitive dance. Okay, so we're talking a teenage, white, middle-class girl in competitive dance in high school, 14 years old. They did not ask one question at this physical, which the physical was for the purpose of dance. Okay, I didn't take her in for a sore throat. I took her in for a physical for dance. Not one question about body image, not one question about eating disorders, not one question about dieting, purging, overexercising, laxative, nothing, not one question. So how are we going, if we're not even asking the individual who is like the textbook red flag waving pre-eating disorder risk patient, <laughs> right. we're certainly not asking the middle-aged fat man or whatever we're not like non-stereotypical presentations which we know exist eating disorders are not bound to the you know and that's the majority that the majority of patients with eating disorders are not in thin white teenage girl bodies most of them are not the fix is to ask the fix is to ask good questions honestly that's a good practice of medicine anyway is you don't need a bunch of excess tests and things. If you just ask good questions, we've got to start there. We've got to start there. And then the other thing that will help this is if as a culture, all of us health professionals and non-professionals, most of them are dieting, restricting, exercising, I'm following. I'm so excited to tell you what they're doing. How many clients have told me their doctor's like, oh, my doctor told me they were on keto and now they're purporting, purporting this is what yeah. they should do. Belief, our personal beliefs influence the way we practice medicine. Our personal life experience colors the way we practice. We try to be objective and try to not let that creep in, but it just, we're humans. We're, we're influenced by the same stuff. We're doctors. Yes, we're doctors, but guess what? We shop at the same grocery store as you. We have to go buy the same clothes. We watch the same internet. We do the same, like we're hearing all the same stuff. We have the same issues with our own food and body and eating and Particularly right now, these people that are sort of like, um, I would say, mid-career to late-career physicians, these are the people that grew up in the 70s and 80s that were like the, you know, got the head start on the biggest surge of diet culture influence that America has ever endured, like starting in probably the 70s with the dietary guidelines. 
that has been our life. Okay. That has been our whole life. We all lived through the eighties and did drank the slim fast and did the thigh master and the jazzercise. Not we like, so we're trying to unpack a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And we also have to keep in mind, like, okay, so what, if the doctor does keto and has normal blood pressure and whatever, guess what? That doctor also has certainly a lot of other factors in their life that influence the outcome of their own health. Okay. If you're practicing medicine, you are already in a privileged group of people. Okay. You have an education, you have an income, like regardless of all the other things, like N equals one, like something happened for one person doesn't mean that like testimony, it's not science that that is an N of one case study. (laughs) Yeah. That, and we don't believe that stuff. I mean, you can associate anything. You can be like, I ate a banana yesterday. And then today I have a migraine. So bananas must cause migraines. Zodiac. Zodiac people don't come for me. My husband, I believe I'm a Leo through and through. My husband read me a horoscope of like a Sagittarius. And I'm like, oh my God. Yes, that is me. He's like, it's Sagittarius. I'm like, don't do that. Don't do but it's like, we can, we can make connections anywhere we you want. You can. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> if you want to believe that about yourself, that's fine. <laughs> but it, it, we all have body autonomy, including doctors, and you are allowed to diet or eat keto or whatever. When you're wearing a white coat and telling other people about it, you are held to a different standard. 100%. And that's, that's where we come derailed pretty quick. Who do you believe are the people that could have the most impact on this? You know, I think folks like ourselves and there are other people in our community, private practitioners who do that advocacy work and make effort, but it's also difficult. I'll say for myself, like I run a private practice. I see clients all day. You don't always have the clout to knock on someone's door and say, hello, can I teach you about something you don't want to learn? Who do you see as the agents of change? Maybe not immediately, but over time, is it the American Medical Association? Is it more local than that? What would be some of those agency or or groups you think that could actually start to? Well, you know, I think it's going to come from both ends. I think it's going to be the tippy top Department of Health and Human Services, the FDA, the top policymakers, when they set standards of practice, that stuff trickles down and that immediately becomes how third-party payers uh, request practice to be and medical records to be. That's how we treat uh, people in the military. That ha- I mean, there's just like uh, the tippy tippy top. A lot of a lot of that rolls downstream, you know. So I think people at the p- big, huge policy level understanding some of these basic things would help. Also, we need to work from the bottom up and start with the trainees and the students, the medical students, the medical trainees, the dietitian to be people, the physical therapist. I mean. This doesn't stop. I'm like, who can I precept? Who can I teach? I would love to get into a university and teach Maggie, like health or something. Yeah, because those are the people that are going to practice for the next 50 years. Now, does a first year medical student have the clout to really like shake the tree today? No, but (laughs) if we, those are sometimes easier places to insert ourselves. And these are people that still have a you know, elastic type of belief system about the practice of medicine. We can change the culture from the ground up and then it will get easier as those people come into positions of authority and become leaders and stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's really hard for example, for a cardiologist in practice who is a, you know, paying member of the cardiology society, whatever, and the American heart association and the, this, that, and they go to all these meetings and this is like who tells, publishes the journals and stuff, telling them your patients need to lose weight, your patients need to lose weight, patients need to lose weight. And then 
you know, they listen to you and me and read a few things and listen to a podcast, like for them to change their practice is extremely hard. Okay. It doesn't mean that it's not right. I, there are many hard decisions that are the right thing to do, but sometimes the hard involved in that is just too much to overcome. And honestly, was it easy for us? I will tell you, this is hard. (laughs) It it was hard to leave the community of practitioners that I used to have, the immediate um, recognition I got for working in those institutions. You know, I worked in major hospitals that people right wow, it's hard to go on your own. The the lack of insurance coverage, there's all this stuff that's hard. So yeah, I empathize with that idea. Well, and I I have essentially left clinical practice to pursue this education Uh piece because it takes, it's a full-time job to be talking about these things. Most clinicians that are working, you know, 70, 80 hours a week, face-to-face patient time, they're not doing this kind of work because they can't, I mean, they just can't like the bottom line is they just can't. And, and you want them, yeah, you want them to keep (laughs) seeing patients because trust me, we've got a a provider shortage and it's getting worse. And so we, you know, I'm not discouraging anybody to leave the practice of medicine, but it's, I just want to make clear that there's like a lot of things at play. This is just not a bunch of like jackalope doctors who have absolutely no sensitivity or cultural awareness a cat, who are <laughs> out to like damage the world, you know, and I'm not excusing anything, but it's just, I, people have to understand like, this is how, this is how your doctor came to be practicing like this. And yeah. it's not right. And it's not fair. And it's not scientifically supported. And it's, in my opinion, not the most ethical way to practice medicine in the year 2022, but this is how it is. And so let's collaborate and try to get what everybody needs out of this interaction best that we can. It's understanding you and your doctor on our team. And as best as you can choose someone who's respectful and aligned, yes, do that. And to the degree you can't, the question becomes, how do we become on the same team for me? Not for the dogma of weight loss or what the insurance companies say. How do I get myself good with my philosophies and my understanding so that I can be on team with this doctor and take care of me? Because you are the outcome. You. (laughs) This is There's all these influences on that visit and on that interaction, but you are what matters most. It's an empowering message that you give that that that's possible for people to learn and that there are things that we can all do little by little over time to hopefully see a future that I believe will be different. It has changed. It's changed. No, even (laughs) year over year, I see a little bit of changes. Like there's things that um, like wouldn't have ever, ever, ever even happened. In fact, I saw this is just a side note. I do not watch Dr. Phil McGraw show. I do not like Dr. Phil. I do not like the last name. I didn't even know his last name. Yes. Well, he, I, I did not watch the show, but I saw that he recently broadcast a show where he brought on a body liberation fat activist. And basically, and if you have any context with Dr. Phil, he's like Oprah's BFF Mm -hmm. and has been prescribing weight loss. And he's personally, he's lost weight and he had all these diet plans back in the nineties and all this sort of self-help stuff anyway. But, and now I will say the, the review I read of the show, actually he did a terrible job and was extremely berating to fat people. And it was not a positive experience for any fat person watching the show. But the fact that he invited a guest on like what the point of me saying that is that like we're tapping into the spaces where it would have never, ever, ever been even a little tiny morsel of conversation. Did that help? 
was it handled the right way uh, according to this review? Probably not. It probably was terrible. He's still probably not somebody who's going to support weight neutrality, but, but it's, things are happening in places where they never, ever did before, you know, like Good um, happening. They're, 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 they're having the conversation. They're, they're realizing they can't ignore the conversation because there's a collective now, particularly with social media and the popularity of intuitive eating and body acceptance they might be having the wrong types of conversations, but they're forced to have them now because the yeah. consumers are asking for it. They're saying, what does yeah. that mean? What does that mean when they're saying that? And they right. have to respond. So, right. so it'll, so it's, it's uncomfortable. I mean, the process of getting from A to B is very uncomfortable for everybody, but I, I see it happening and hopefully we can, you know, the practice of medicine can really change in our career spans. I hope so. Well, you awesome. are such a positive influence on that. I'm just so I'm proud of you as a colleague. It, it makes me really excited and happy to see a medical doctor supporting people. I know that probably wasn't an easy transition for you to make. No, your- well, it wasn't. But in the same token, it's it's not that hard because once you see the science and the information, yeah. it's actually it's like basically do everything that you're doing like you've been trained to do except prescribe weight loss. Like you're just only removing one little tiny piece of information. Everything else is fine. You can still say and do everything else that you know to do. It's not discrediting your whole, you know, bank of knowledge, but um, you have to be able to like admit that I, I should change. I, I want to change. And to like, you may even have to like verbally say that to patients, like say, Hey, you've been my patient for 15 years. And I know I've always told you that, you know, really we should work on your weight in this, but I'm, I've learned some more. Here's some information I found. And I think that we have another way to go. I mean, that's a little bit like say, it's like apologizing to your spouse or something like there's like a little bit of like kind of repair. That's a repair relationship. Yeah. Yeah. But it's possible. So I would encourage you to do it. And I would encourage the patients that are listening to just find whatever resources you need to support you so that you stay in healthcare and see somebody to get healthcare. Main takeaway. Where can we find your resources, Maggie? Tell us a little bit about how to support you and follow your work ongoing. Yes. Well, it's easy to find me, Maggie Landis, MD, and I'm sure you can put the link in the show notes or whatever, but that's my website, MaggieLandisMD.com. Maggie Landis, MD is my handle on Facebook, Instagram. And uh, I have a podcast too called Health Can't Wait. I rebranded it recently. It used to be called The Eatfluencer, but it is now called The Health Can't Wait. Wait spelled W-E-I-G-H-T. You like that? You see the pun? You see that? Isn't that funny? Um, So you can find that everywhere that you listen to podcasts. And I've got lots of, I have some solo episodes, some guest episodes that are all about these topics, specifically about weight stigma and the practice of medicine. Excellent. Well, thank you for your perspective, your time, most importantly, your role modeling of what it looks like to transition your care and then help other people do the same. Maggie, it was so fun talking to you today. Thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me, Melissa. You're welcome. Bye-bye. It makes me really mad when my clients who work so hard to heal their relationship with food with me and my programs go back out into the world and the real world isn't quite caught up to speed. My belief is that you getting clear on your values, how to advocate, how to navigate is the best thing we can be doing for now. But I can't help but ask bigger questions like what would it take to actually make a difference? So if you're listening to this and you belong to any kind of organization where you can make a difference for folks in larger bodies, I hope these episodes inspire you to think of ways you can do that beyond your personal work. 
so often when we're doing this, you know, I, mean, I guess if you're listening to a podcast, it's like self-help, right? Like you right now are listening to a podcast to get ideas on how to make your experience better. And that's a really important start. But as you do, and particularly after you feel strong and healed, I really hope that this podcast inspires you to look around your world and say, what is something small I can just do to dismantle weight stigma and fat phobia in the world around me? It would make such a difference. You know, I had a client once who I love, I love when I get nurses and doctors as clients, she was a nurse and she went through my program and we worked together. And one day she came into session. She said, you know, the way that we are about weighing, it's not working for me. And I don't think it's working for my clients. So she actually spoke to her manager at the doctor's office and they came up with a new flow for weighing patients. So that was one person who had the, the bravery to notice what might be made better in her environment. And she made a small change. It's not everything, but it starts to shift the culture, breaking the diet cycle at a bigger level than just healing ourselves. I don't know. That's really exciting to me. It gives me more meaning and purpose in this work. And I hope it does that for you too. Okay. You get the point. You're adequately inspired. I want to tell you what I'm up to tonight. At the time of this recording, it is Friday. And my friend and I, you know how it is with your friends when you get older, you make a plan six months from now, because that's when y'all are both free. My friend knows that I love Gloria Estefan. You might've seen me tell this story before on Instagram. When I was a little kid, I loved Gloria Estefan so much that I named every single one of my teddy bears Gloria. All of them were named Gloria. Since that time, I have continued to love Gloria. Conga is my karaoke song. I have seen Get On Your Feet, the Gloria Estefan musical. And no surprise to any of us, when she released a movie this year, Father of the Bride, which is, we're going to have to wait and see. We're watching it tonight. That's the headline. A remake from my childhood. I am very, I was very excited to watch this. So my friend texts me and she's like, we're going to watch this movie together. So it took some time to finally get the plan in place, but it is going down tonight. That is the exciting social life of your favorite dietitian. We are going to order some pizza. We're going to keep the Pizza Friday tradition going. And we are going to watch Father of the Bride, and I'm going to see my girl, Gloria Estefan. All of this is giving me little kid vibes, right? You're having your friend come over, you're watching a movie, you're eating pizza. My favorite star. It's just going to... And I'm sharing this with you because we have to get practice with that side of ourselves that just loves ourselves and has fun for the sake of it. You need to practice with that because as you heal your relationship with food, there's going to be more space. And sometimes that feels really scary, but sometimes it really is super fun. So alongside all of this work we're doing to like be with these uncomfortable feelings and do the hard work, what if we started making space for some quirky, fun, simple, inexpensive, authentic ways at having fun? That's what I'm doing tonight. So if you've seen the movie, do message me after. Well, yeah, by the time this airs, I'll have seen it. So message me if you watched it and we can discuss what we thought of Gloria's return to the screen. What an amazing woman.
We'll be back next week, maybe talk about getting ready for Thanksgiving. And as I mentioned, if the Gentle Nutrition Intensive is something that you're going to want to be a part of, put your name on that wait list. We will make sure to get you all the information you need to set yourself up with a small group in the new year. Maybe this is the one we don't do a diet again, and we don't feel guilty about it. Otherwise, you can apply for a one-to-one program anytime you'd like at melissalandrynutrition.com or message me at no.more.guilt and I'll give you all the details to help you decide if the program would be a fit for you. Until next time, be good to your good body.